sort of understanding motivations, understanding yourself, understanding your conscious, unconscious biases all are very important because they are all elements that you bring to a role when you're dealing with other people. And the more aware you are of yourself, the better then you can deal with others and what's going on with them. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Michael Akeholzer, a veteran of over 35 years' service in the Royal Australian Navy. Michael joined the Navy from regional Queensland here in Australia at the age of 15 to be a technical sailor. His focus soon shifted and he underwent Chinese language training, which became the catalyst for a long career in an intelligence area. Moving quickly through the ranks as a sailor, Michael changed over to officer and deployed on operational service in both Iraq and the Persian Gulf. When he transferred to the Naval Reserve in 2012, it was to continue to serve in a defence role in the Australian Public Service. It's what Michael went on to do next when he retired from full-time work that I really wanted to talk about. You see, he's a passionate advocate and educator on positive masculinity and men's mental health issues. He has a role with Menslink, a Canberra-based not-for-profit that helps young guys going through tough times. Michael has been a mentor for young men and has been pivotal in creating and delivering an education program that helps male teens develop and maintain positive relationships with themselves and, of course, others. He also regularly speaks to adult groups on mental fitness issues. Add on top of that, he's also a drummer in a Canberra-based band called the Black Souls. He's a competitive powerlifter and the owner of Silver Mongo Enterprises provide a range of entertainment, public speaking and education services. Folks, I do need to warn you up front that we do talk about suicide in this episode, for which I know some this can be distressing. So if you need resources of support in Australia, go to beyondblue.org or you can access 24-hour free counselling in Australia using the number for Lifeline, which is 131114. As always, please look after yourself. Let's get right in. So Michael Akeholzer, welcome to the Frontline Boardroom Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Martin. Well, Michael, the question I ask my guests always at the beginning is how did you end up joining the military and, and in your case, the Royal Australian Navy? I think my story wasn't that unusual. Back in the uh, late 70s, I joined in uh, first 5th of January, 1977, as a 15-year-old at HMAS Lewin. I moved from Mount Morgan up in sunny Queensland to uh, the west coast at HMAS uh, Lewin in Fremantle. And I think like a lot of the guys I was at Lewin with, I joined to get away from what well, was a pretty tough situation at home and just something that um, I needed to get away from. I was just uh, pretty lucky that uh, in year 10, we had a Navy recruiting team come up to Mount Morgan High School, offered the opportunity to to join and, and I grabbed it. Yeah. Yeah, it's often that case, isn't it, that sort of just that sliding doors moment from a a recruiting team or somebody you know or seen sort of something on TV. Hmm. Who were the leadership influences in your early life, early career? You know, looking back, I've uh, leadership is a funny thing for me. 
leadership for me was direction. My, my father was a very strict disciplinarian and, and his uh, style of leadership was a very directive kind of leadership. You know, you will do something. And, and that quite interestingly fit quite well with the early days at, at Lewin because that was Navy's approach in those days too, was, you know, take orders and, and give orders type of thing. So I never really understood leadership in the way that we do these days. It was, it was a matter of, of taking orders. And, you know, my influences there were, were the guys at Lua. Now I can't remember his name, but there was a, an SD officer at Lua while I was there, a special duties officer. He was older, had changed over from sailor, big man, a bit of a Viking, red head, big red beard. And I guess if I look at my early influences in the type of person I wanted to be, it was this bloke was very rough tough, gruff, but gentle and fair at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting approach to me. I was certainly used to the rough and tough side of it, but I hadn't been as used to the, you know, the gentle fatherly approach that this guy Mm. exuded. So that's one person I certainly remember from those early days. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Sort of it's the – sometimes it's the person you don't expect to be that influence, but looking back you go, actually, there was a profound effect at the end of the day. Mm. Your career path in the Navy, which was over, is that, am I right in saying 35 years? Yeah, 35 years, yeah. Yeah, and that saw you as a, a firstly a sailor and, and in a particular sort of bespoke interest area, I guess, in intelligence support. And while there's probably not a lot you can say about that, um, what were those experiences like? What did you learn as a result of being somebody in that space? I guess the early days as a, uh, I was a language specialist and worked, uh, not, I didn't go to sea. Mm. We didn't go to sea except for very short periods of time. So in the early days, you learned how to fit into existing teams as an outsider. Mm. And like I said, that was where I started to develop those skills of being able to, you know, kind of adapt pretty quickly to a particular situation, understand my role and, and make that role very clear to the people I was working with to show what value add I provided. Mm. But the early days as a, as a sailor, they were primarily in Melbourne. I did do a 12-month stint in Hong Kong as a young man mm. to do advanced language training. Mm-hmm. But they were mainly in Melbourne, so it was a it was a routine that was based around 12-hour shifts. Life was sort of pretty straightforward, pretty routine, and in that regard, mm. quite comfortable. You know, I sort of progressed through the ranks pretty quickly. I was a chief petty officer, so second from the top of the enlisted ranks within 11 years in the Navy. And I think I found through that that I actually lacked a lot of the skills that my that contemporaries at the same level had because I didn't have the exposure to dealing with people mm-hmm. as they did, even though I was a, a watch leader in the era that I was at. So it was interesting when later on in my career I got exposed to those guys, understanding how much I lacked and, and having to sort of, you know, catch up the pace a bit there later on. Hmm. I changed, uh, I was commissioned in 1989, which was an interesting experience in terms of, you know, going from, uh, actually I'll go back a step in there. I think one of the first steps that I sort of had to start thinking about a different, or was thinking at a different level was when I applied to become an officer. And my divisional officer at the unit that I was at asked me a question I hadn't really thought about before. He said, so, Michael, he said, what can you what can you tell me that's wrong with the unit? Mm-hmm. And like any good sailor, I was able to um, <laughs> run off a comprehensive <laughs> list of things I'd identified that could be done better. And he said, okay, so 
how would you change them? And I kind of, it stuck me for a while. And he said, because that's what you're asking to do. Mm. You're asking to move from the people, you know, somebody who identifies the problems to somebody who's actually going to do something about them and, mm. and address them. And I, that was a pretty profound kind of idea that I had at that point in time. You know, it was sort of opened up my eyes a bit to, to what this new role that I was getting into mm. was all about. Yeah. It's, it's often the case, isn't it? To, you know, your career path to chief head officer of 11 years, that is weak. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon in the corporate world to be rewarded for technical competence and, and be promoted very quickly. And then, as you said, you've got to face the, the reality that when you've got to those levels, you've actually got to look after, lead more people. Yeah. And sometimes you haven't had the development around that. And so it's catch up time, isn't it? To find those skills and to, and, you know, probably fall flat in your face a couple of times as well. Oh, look, absolutely. And I've seen it, you know, in, in later in life that there are a lot of people that are put in those positions and it can be a sink or swim environment. And a lot of people sink because they can't, they can't move from that <clears throat> technical expertise to the next step up, which is about helping and developing other people mm. to do the job while you manage the high level stuff, you know. Mm. So in your journey of, of finding that, you know, you've got to find those other skills, what were the resources or sources that you found for that? Were there moments in time you go, actually, that was an opportunity for learning as a leader? What are some of those stories? There's certainly a lot of stuff that I did, I did off my own back. Mm-hmm. Learning, I guess learning by uh, learning by experience was probably the biggest thing, you know, that as we went through. Mm. I remember very uh, as I was a junior officer, I was uh, I was working for Russ Crane, who later on became uh, chief of navy. And Russ was another person who influenced me significantly and inspired me a heck of a lot in, in my approach to people. I was a I was a lieutenant commander when I was working for him, when he was running the intelligence section within maritime headquarters back in the in the mid nineties. And I was managing a, a particular part of, of the work for him, and on this particular day, I sent out a, I sent out an instruction to start an operation. I hadn't thought much about it, and I get a call to go down to Russ's office, and Russ said, "Michael, uh, have a seat." And okay, I sat down. He said, uh, "Michael, that um, that message you just sent out, yep, yep, it's gone." He said, "Yes, I know." <laughs> he said, uh, "You don't have the authority to do that." And I kind of scratched my head. He said, that was an executive order you sent out. That was the, the purview of the maritime commander. So you've kind of gone a little bit above your pay grade there. Mm. And I, oh, crikey, I'm really sorry. So he said, no, no worries, no worries. Let's just not have it happen again, yeah? Mm-hmm. I said, absolutely. Two weeks later, exactly the same thing happened again. <laughs> I sent this signal out. So I get the, uh, I get the call. Could you go down to see the, you know, go to see the captain, please? And I went, oh my gosh. And I went down to his office and I went into, I went into kid mode. I went into dad mode. I stood to attention in front of his desk. I was waiting for the, you know, the hard reprimand. And uh, Russ said, Michael, have a seat. And for a moment there, I thought it was a trap, you know, <laughs> catch me off guard. But he said, have a seat. He said, what happened? And I just went, Oh my God. I said, I've done it again. He said, yes, you did. So he said, what do you reckon could be contributing to this? Take me through your process. So I took him through my process and, and what was missing in the, my process was basically a checklist where, you know, I ran through the process and 
And the bit that was missing was a box that said, you know, make sure this goes out in the right way. Mm. So he said, look, uh, why don't you add that to your checklist and, and we should be good. And I walked out of that his office determined that I would never let him down again. The I felt the way that he treated me was it was a way that I hadn't felt before. It was respectful. It was firm. Mm. It identified to me the area that needed improvement, mm. even helped me to, you know, identify that myself. And that was an approach that I wanted to take out with people myself. Mm. And that was a key element, I think, in me stepping up to, you know, become or at least adopting the leadership style that I, I still really maintain today. Yeah, oh, that's great. Russ Crane, one of our great Navy leaders that actually started the major change program, um, New Generation Navy, mm. which is a little bit of a while ago now. So that career as an officer and providing intelligence support, that had you in operational service overseas in a couple of different places in Iraq and the Persian Gulf. What was that experience like being, you know, going as an intelligence support officer almost as an adjunct to other organisations going in there as a bit of a sort of a lone agent, so to speak? Certainly the, the two operational deployments were were significantly different. The first one, I spent six months in Baghdad as part of the combined force that was working with the Americans. And I was a deputy officer in charge of a, it was a coalition unit that was based on an American analysis team and then had, oh my gosh, we had 20 different countries in there. And most of those were ex-Soviet blocs, so you know, Latvians, Ukrainians, Moldovans. We had a guy from Mongolia. Most of these guys were all single operators. You know, we had maybe twosies from Poland and, and Ukraine and that, but the smaller countries, Moldova, Mongolia, they're all single operators. So it was one of those opportunities where I was given the carriage of building this combined intelligence support unit where I had to leverage off a lot of those, a lot of those people skills that I learned over the years to try and get the best out of these people. Because we had not only a skills issue there, but we had a language issue. There was a, there were two main languages there. There was a Baltic language and there was the English language. And through that all, we were able to uh, get the job done. It was also an area or a time when I, I was really, I guess it was emphasized to me the, importance of diversity and how sometimes our unconscious bias can give us certain views of the world and certain views of people. Mm -hmm. There was this particular day where I was asked to the front door of the headquarters and with the words, (laughs) there's one of yours at the front door, that was how they used to be known, one of mine. And I walked to the front door and it was like a movie out of a uh, Clint Eastwood spaghetti western. The door opened and looked out onto this barren dirt, overly yellowy sort of scene with almost the dust devils blowing in the background, a desert scene of, of, of Iraq. And standing in the middle of this was a small Moldovan soldier dressed in uh, dark brown with his weapons on him, you know, carrying his weapon on his back, holstered weapon on his hip and his, his kit bag. And he basically said, hello. I'm one of yours. I went, great, you know, come on inside. And my first impression was, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this guy? How is he going to contribute to what we're doing? Because my challenge with most of the coalition officers that were sent to us was that they were they were strategic recons. So, you know, they were, they were snake eaters. They weren't intelligence analysts. Right. So I put him in a team with the Ukrainians and basically let them get to work, let them train him up a little bit. 
A little while after he'd been with us, there was an attack on an American Abrams tank where the turret on the tank had been separated from the main body of the vehicle. And the Americans were concerned that there was a new weapon in theatre that the opposition had got hold of an anti-tank guided missile. So that obviously changed our threat assessment. Mm-hmm. So we're working through this, and I suddenly had one of the Ukrainians come up to me with his Moldovan to say, so the Moldovan's got, got something to say. So, yep, yep, what is it? And the Moldovan in broken English said that uh, he had a piece of paper. It's like a, you know, back of a, of a drink coaster. And he said, not ATG, RPG. And the Americans that are with me going, an RPG, no, it's not possible. We can't, you can't take out an Abrams with an RPG. And the Moldovan had hand drawn on this uh, piece of paper how he'd been trained by the old Soviets of a particular vulnerability that the uh, Abrams had. And if you could hit that vulnerability, it was a particular angle that you got on the tank in between or at the join where the, you know, the ring where the turret joins the tank. If you could hit that, then you could pop the turret. Mm. If this bloke hadn't been with us, this bloke that I had sort of almost discounted because, you know, of who he was and where he came from, if we hadn't had him, we would have significantly changed our threat assessment on what was happening on the ground, and yet this person had the key piece of information. Mm-hmm. And that was a bit of a, again, a, a light going off, you know, the bulb going off in my head about the importance of taking a step back, mm-hmm. understanding your own bias when you are in charge of teams and then being able to make the most of all the people you've got, irrespective mm-hmm. of who they are and where they came from. But I think Iraq also showed me one of the worst elements of leadership, and that was what I would call some of the old school stuff. We're going through a bit of a a lull in and a dip in morale. And during a watch changeover one night, the American leadership came in and they said, oh, we've got something for you to watch. And they had some uh, gun camera footage from an Apache helicopter that had attacked some insurgents. And so they put this video up on the screen and everybody watched it and we basically watched some insurgents being neutralized. And at the end of it, this cheer went up from the Americans. It was, it was like a, the whole event was being used as a, as a pep talk, as a morale booster, as a, you know, five people up. Mm. And I kind of went away from that. It, it disturbed me a little bit, not only because of what I just watched, but because of the way that it was being used. Mm. And I'd say that was probably a low light you know, for me and seeing how a probably well-meaning but not very well-executed thought mm. by a senior leader mm. could, uh, you know, the outfall of that, what could happen with that. Yeah. With the Persian Gulf deployment, that was significantly different because that was on a ship that was, you know, me going back to old school stuff of supporting, obviously, one of our own commanders, but having to integrate very quickly into into a team that had done all their mission readiness evaluations, workups, and all those sort of things. And I, I literally joined the ship the day before it sailed. Mm. What I saw there, though, was something very interesting. I, I came on board. I had uh, I had my bag with me. I was looking for the wardroom, and I was walking along the ship's waist on, on the upper deck, and I was challenged by uh, a sailor as to who I was. You know, mm-hmm. respectfully, sir, you know, can I ask, you for some ID, what you're doing on the ship. 
And yep, said absolutely, showed him my ID card, explained who I was, thank you very much. And I thought that was another good form of, you know, we're talking about leadership here, that that was a leadership from down going up. Mm. You know, here's a young person knowing what their job was, knowing what the duty was and being able to execute that mm. in a way that was respectful, but in this case, also firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that stuff doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen without people actually thinking, does it? You know, you go back to your Moldovan officer, I mean, if you had taken a different approach, then, you know, that person may not have even been comfortable offering up that information. If the, you know, the leaders in that situation of displaying a video from a, of a, from a UAV or whatever, Apache, had thought about it and actually tested it with some other leaders, they might have come up with a different solution to their problem. Mm. And a junior sailor doesn't stick their hand up and challenge an officer without having been through some process where somebody's been delivered about teaching them how to do that in a good way. Yeah. And exactly, I think that's the key thing is, you know, empowering somebody in such a way that they feel confident that they can do that mm. and, you know, have the backup of their leadership mm. with that. Yeah, yeah. Very important. You came to a point in your career and you said, I've had enough of the uniform, I'm going to transition. What was the transition like for you? Initially, I thought I was going for a soft transition because I moved across and probably up in the public service. I was a commander when I left and I I managed to get myself an EL2 job in the public service, mm. but in a unit that I'd worked in before in the Canberra area. So I thought it'd be the transition for me would be pretty straightforward, but <laughs> it was less so for my staff because as much as I thought I had a you know, that I developed this kind of a light touch leadership style. It, it still wasn't light enough for what the public service was going through at the time. And I'm also challenged with an interesting, it's almost a dichotomy where I, I have a certain style, but I don't look like I have that certain style. When I was very young, I had a lot of trouble with uh, self esteem and self confidence. So I got into the gym and I built myself up because that was a, that was a bit of a shield for me against the world outside. I wanted to, I wanted to intimidate people because that would keep me safe. Mm -hmm. Unintended outcome of that is that people who don't know me can be intimidated by me because of the, the way I look. And, and this was actually something that was addressed in one of my last reports as an officer where I was advised as part of my performance report that I intimidated people and I asked for elaboration mm -hmm. or clarification. And the sentence changed, not that I intimidated people, but people were intimidated by me because I get very excited and very passionate about my work and I can get very animated about that. I have an unfortunate habit of frowning, scowling even when I'm thinking or when I'm, you know, grappling with a problem and, and all those sort of things with the physicality can put people off. So that knowledge became important when I transitioned into the public service because that self-awareness I could then bring to my new team. Mm. And rather than let them find out by themselves and, you know, come up with any misapprehensions about me, my first one of my first talks with my staff was to say, this is my personality, this is, mm. you'll see this if you see this face, mm. please ask me if I've, you know, not understood something or was something not clear or is there something wrong because it's not an, it's not an angry face, this is my thinking face. That was the start of being able to transition, you know, to that, that type of team. Mm. But the team also required a whole different way of 
leading to to one which I was used to before. Mm. I was used to teams being able to be largely self-motivated, not requiring a lot of direction, those sort of things. And, and the team that I inherited wasn't quite the same as that. In one case in particular, we ended up with a pretty significant personality clash. The team member accused me of bullying, so I said, okay, we need to clarify that. And we went through quite a, a rigorous process that public service has. You know, I went to my line management and said, we need to address this because I want to make sure that the, um, the staff member's concerns are addressed mm. and that we get the situation resolved, which I think we're able to. And that was part of my drive to to let the people that I was working with know that I I felt that I was accountable mm. for my actions, mm. that I was accountable to them for my actions, and that I was willing to go however far it went to make sure that any concerns they had, A, they could bring them to me, B, they'd be addressed, and C, you know, uh, they'd be taken seriously and whatever outcomes came out of that. Mm. would be done properly. And, and that's been a large part of my view on working with people is, you know, being ready to lead by example, never asking people to do what you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah. I think um, there was something you said there, Michael, about the fact that, you know, that how important that self-awareness is and to get stuff out there. And it came out in other and your other, other sort of uh, stories there is that, we need to treat people in the way that they need to be treated, not necessarily the way we think we should be treated. And the fact is that you actually use that to great effect by, you know, being aware of those sort of the fact that you are somebody who has done serious amounts of work in the bodybuilding area, that that's intimidating, that you've got a certain face for certain things. And it's great that somebody actually was prepared to give you feedback as well. Yeah, and I think that's an important part of anybody that wants to step into a, a leadership role is you've got to be and I think it is courageous. You've got to be courageous to open yourself up to that, to recognise those areas of yourself where, you know, the, the edges are a bit rough and, and they can uh, use a bit of polishing and then be prepared to do the work that, that that requires to polish that off. I think over the years, you know, I left uh, I left the Navy with a, an adjustment disorder. I've sort of been dealing with anxiety and depression for many years and, and that drove me to a lot of, I guess, self-analysis, almost self-awareness, dealing with counsellors as well and sort of understanding motivations, understanding yourself, understanding your conscious, unconscious biases all are very important because they are all elements that you bring to a role when you're dealing with other people. And the more aware you are of yourself, the better then you can deal with others and what's going on with them. Hmm. So, Michael, you talked about sort of your own mental health challenges what's that like as a leader and what are the strategies that you found useful for not only for yourself but others in the workplace i think the the biggest challenge of course is overcoming the stigma of saying to somebody i've got a mental health condition Mm. i hit a bad spot in 2007 but when i was still in the navy where i was starting to actually have some pretty dark thoughts and i self-referred myself there to to DVA and I got assigned a counsellor and, and that was a turning point in my life with regard to understanding the mental health condition myself and learning how to deal proactively with it in terms of the strategies and, and all these sort of things I've been able to put in place. And I think that knowledge of myself has been very useful in being able to deal with staff members that I've had 
over the years in similar conditions. I had one person in particular in one of my last jobs as a public servant that had pretty significant mental health problems and we were able to proactively manage those. Of course, you know, everything that we could to give the person the time they needed to to work on managing the condition that they had, working leave, all those sorts of things, making sure that when they came back to work on a graduated return to work program that, you know, we're able to do that in a realistic way without putting pressure on them to that would end up with them reverting reverting back on their condition. So I think it's important, A, to understand yourself because obviously understanding your own emotional state is important because that has an influence and impact on how you're dealing with other people. Mm. Having the ability to say to somebody, look, guys, you know, today's not a good day. I'm going to sort of take myself out of the picture for a while. If you need something really urgently done, come and talk to me, but otherwise I'm going to be in your office, the door's going to be closed and, mm. you know, this is going on. Or saying to the organisation, you know, I need a couple of, I want to take a couple of mental health days. Mm. I run a motorcycle. That used to be one of my therapies. Yes. And I could do that. I had a quite an understanding of line management there too. Mm. So what went up for me also then went down to my, you know, the, the people that I've worked with to support mm. people through that because if you can do that, then you've got a much higher probability of them coming back to work as a uh, productive member of your team as opposed to mm. losing them because, you know, they can't manage the condition that they have. Yeah. I think it's an important point, isn't it, the fact that whether you're a leader or a member of a team, the people working with you, we are integrated humans. We will turn up to work with all that we've got in our world. And while there's a balance for leaders to find about managing that, leading that in an appropriate way, you know, within the bounds of that employment arrangement, isn't it? It is, and it comes up. I mean, you know, mental health is just one of them. I mean, hmm. you know, we have, we've all worked with, you know, people who have family. Obviously, families are, are a big part of people's lives, and you have those incidents where somebody rings up and they, they come to work and they're, they're clearly upset and there's something happening with the family, so you try to work through those issues to, you know, as, as a manager, leader, you've, you've obviously got the whatever the required output of your, your team, your organisation is. So you've got that balanced with the, the well-being of your people because if your people are, work, are happy, they're, you know, they're being, as somebody said to me once, you know, fed, booted and spurred, you're, you're happy, you're good to go. Mm. It means if you can balance those two, mm. then I think you've got a happy and a productive workforce. It's where, mm. it's where you can't balance those two where as a manager you're so focused on the output that you forget about the well-being of your people or you become so focused on the well-being of your people, the output suffers. You know, I think that's the that's the balance that we as leaders and managers have to take. And, and of course, there's a clear difference between what a leader is and what a manager is mm. at the end of the day as well. Yeah, agreed. So, Michael, you've had that experience as not only in the Navy as a sailor, as, a, as an officer, and then in the public service, and you ultimately leave the public service and full-time work and take a, a really different direction than most people would anticipate, I guess, walking out of those roles that you had. And we've spent some time talking about this before, but I'd love you to tell us what you've been doing over the last five or six years in the work you've been doing. Sure. In the last couple of years in the public service, I started volunteering for a local charity that provides mentoring and counselling for young guys from 10 years old to 18 for the mentoring, the counselling out to 25. 
And I was volunteering with them as a mentor. I got approached to see if I would share some of my story, when we, particularly when we talk about the mental health side of things, in a program that they had running in schools called Science is Deadly, where it's a one-hour session, and fundamentally it's about encouraging young blokes to talk about their problems rather than mm. uh, succumb to the, um, the male stereotype of stoic silence. Mm. So I started volunteering for that probably in 20, 2013, 2014. And that, that meant, you know, every now and again I'd go and do a session with one of the mentoring staffers and talk to young fellas. As I was starting to think about what I would do after the, the public service, the CEO of Menslink and I, we, we sat down and he asked me if I was interested in developing another program, education program for young guys that would take him beyond the, what well, the science is deadly thing and more into developing their self-awareness and helping them to build their self-confidence, self-esteem and, and also to understand their emotions, how they fit into the world and how they can make that engagement with the outside world a positive one rather than a lot of the negative, you know, the negative uh, social contacts that a lot of young blokes can have. So I spent, uh, I flipped over in the mid of 2016 to take up a part-time role or casual role with Mentlink and I developed a program that we call Pride and Pride is uh, comprises 12 modules so it goes all the way through from a fundamental session that we do about values, you know, what, what values do, because they're not things that young blokes think about. What values do they have? And, and to help them understand how values influence our behaviours, attitudes, contacts with others. And then going through there, talking about positive masculinity, talking about relationship with others, about how to deal with their emotions, how to deal with the, you know, give them some tips and tricks to how on how to deal with the outside world. And, and what we're attempting to do there is to, answer some of the questions that our mentees would come to us saying, yeah, why don't they teach this sort of stuff in school? Mm. And we, we thought, well, that's a pretty good question. You know, we, we teach a lot of stuff in school, but unfortunately what we don't do is often prepare young people in general adequately for the outside world. You know, we again, we go back to the technical side of things. They become very good academically, but Socially, they can still have a lot of problems. So that's what we try to do with mm. that program. Well, I won't say we try because I know in the five years since we went live with the program, we've it's continued to build year on year in terms of people mm. who have become aware of it and, and want to run it. Mm. The program was initially developed for small group work with mid-teens lads. It's the lads only. But we dipped into primary schools about three years ago now, mm -hmm. and that is probably our growth theory at the moment. Mm -hmm. And primary schools, you know, I'm dealing with classes of, of 40 kids at a time, still working the group work with the high school kids, the smaller kids. Mm -hmm. So that's been really rewarding, and it's really been interesting how much of the skills I've developed over the years within Navy and then the public service come to play with working with young kids, you know. Mm -hmm. To me, at the end of the day, leadership is about relationships. And that's what I said before, that there's a difference between leadership and management. Management is about direction and, you know, sort of KPIs and getting things done, whereas leadership is about influencing people mm. to get things done. And there's a difference there. Yeah. You can certainly get a bunch of people to do something as a manager. 
I think as a leader, you get people to do things because they want to do them rather than because they have to do them, if that, mm. if that distinction is clear. Yeah. And so certainly with young people, the way that you can turn a group of young lads off really quickly is stepping into a room and saying, right, you guys need to listen to me because I'm going to, I'm going to lay some wisdom on you mm. because I'll switch off straight away. So you've got to very quickly in the same way that I used to have to when I, you know, stepped onto a ship was to establish your, your relevance to them and your credibility with them and, and talk to them and with them, not at them. Yes. So all those sort of skills have come in. So you're bringing them along with you rather than, you know, them sitting there because they have to sit there sort of thing. Mm. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking there is sort of that, you know, what we don't teach people in schools, it's actually very much about a, you know, it takes a village, doesn't it, to raise the next generation. And, you know, one of those gaps, I think, in our community you know, that the gift of all of us, it's not just parents, it's not just those involved in education, but also the wider community is is helping people to develop a sense of pride in themselves, but also respect for others. So great to have that kind of program. And that's a big one. And I think too, it goes with, you know, a lot of us who've gone through the military, I mean, I, you know, I said I'd draw the Navy as much to get away from my dad, but I'm an immigrant to this country. We I came here when I was six. Hmm. And there's always an element of wanting to serve, of that ethos of service serving others rather than myself. And, you know, whether it's a military public service, what I do now, I actually feel I'll probably have more influence and impact these days working with young people than I did in either of those previous roles that I had because I often say to these young guys, you know, I do what I do because of mistakes that I made and the mistakes that I made influence young blokes today because the way society looks at them as being, you know, well, you're a bloke and you're a powder keg just waiting to go off mm. has been influenced by some of the things that I did as a young fellow and those guys that I hung around with. So mm. my aim with uh, doing what I do now is to try and influence the young blokes of today to have a different impact on the world around them so that when they're looking back in 20, 30, 40 years' time, mm. they've made a positive change in the world. Mm rather than, you know, often feel the negative impact I had. Yeah. I can't help but think that sort of some of the people listening to the podcast are likely to be parents as well. What are those sort of two or three key points for that next generation of men that are in schools that you're talking to right now that that a parent would find useful to um, to know to perhaps even find a way of delivering that to them? I think the first key thing is to, and this goes across all young people, is to help them believe that they're visible to us. A lot of the aberrant behaviours that we see from young people are because they're not feeling that they're seen, they're not feeling that they're being heard. Mm. And so, you know, not being seen, not being heard, being invisible leads to behaviours that, are, you know, may be risky, may be antisocial. You will see me, you will hear me, or if you don't see me, you don't hear me, you don't care, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. Mm. So the first part, the first thing that I would really encourage parents to do is to actually talk to their kids and honest, have honest conversations with their kids. I had a mother ring me up once when I was, her son was in one of my group programs and was getting caught up with some people. She was worried about drug taking. And I said to her, did you ever dabble in drugs or alcohol when you were young? And she went quiet for a second and she said, well, yeah. I said, does your son know that? Well, of course not. 
I said, well, how would you feel about having that discussion with your son? Because all your son's hearing is no. They're not hearing the why. Mm. They're not being spoken to like a, you know, like an adult or like a rational human being that can actually think. And, and we don't give kids enough credit for how deep their thinking goes these days, I think. Mm. So I encourage you to have an open conversation with her son and explain why she was concerned about, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be, and it's because of her own experiences. And and that thing can potentially creates a bond with the child which is open, honest, and can be reciprocated by the child. So communication is, is probably the first step, mm. uh, is a big one, particularly for blokes mm. because we get taught not to talk. So encouraging young blokes early to start talking, to start expressing themselves is important. The second one would be focusing on this idea of values. And I know it's kind of old-fashioned, you know, we Navy values, honor, honesty, courage, integrity, loyalty, roll off the lips, easy. A lot of the schools I go to, I ask them, what are your school values? And if they know them, they don't really understand and they don't really understand what they're really about. And it's about road markers to life, you know. If, mm. if you have nothing else left, everything else is taken away from you. It's your values that will hold you in good stead and it will let people understand who you really are. So trying to instill values in young kids that are then, and I mean positive values, that then allow them to use those values in, in their decision-making processes mm. can go a long way to mm. them making better decisions. And, I, you know, again, I know this because we've had feedback not just from the schools but from young lads themselves who said, you know, we're in a situation in the schoolyard the other day and somebody's been bullied and we thought about what you said, so we went over there and we... You know, we did that little technique you taught us where I teach them to go over, ignore the bully, escort the person being bullied away from the scene so they feel supported. The bully is not being interacted with. They're kind of left there wondering what's going on. So I know that that side of things works. The third and final thing, and I think the third or final thing is something I've learned myself and really goes for everybody, and that's just being kind. Mm. You know, that fundamental part of, before you do something, say something to somebody else, just think about the impact that might have. And if you can if you can be kind, be kind, because that kindness can change another person's life. Mm. Not seeing kindness as a weakness, not seeing emotions as a weakness are all part of how we're trying to build better young men for the future. And I think, you know, any parent that's listening to this there may be things that they would consider for their own kids and, and their own lives, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Such gracious advice, Michael. And, yeah, look, as a parent and grandparent now, <laughs> I'm taking notes. Congratulations, mate. Yeah. What are the resources that you draw on now for thinking about leadership in the work you do? Well, I guess primarily for me it's, it's about, you know, continuing to learn more about myself, mm-hmm. being open to that. As I said to you before, I'm not a – because leadership theory and stuff hasn't been a big part of my life, it's not something that I – it's not something that I really spend a lot of time on Mm -hmm. or in. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly nowadays I do a lot of – do a lot of reading of other people in the field. Maggie Dent, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a parent wondering how to deal with teenagers, Maggie Dent is a great resource looking at what other people in the field are doing and, and learning from them and their experiences. Yeah. 
and then folding that in where you know where it's relevant to to what I'm doing mm. is important. You know, I'm finding even today. I had a Facebook messenger last night from a teacher who was present at one of the sciences deadly gigs I did a couple of a week or so ago, wanting to see if you could have a cup of coffee and maybe uh, talk about mm-hmm. stuff. And I've kind of had a few of those over the years where people who've heard me speak or in the strength community where I'm pretty well known in the Canberra region now as well, where young blokes have contacted me out of the blue and said, Michael, you know, what sort of advice might you give to somebody in this situation? So that I see as a form of leadership too. Yes. You know, helping young guys who are reaching out and and asking for advice. Mm where I can to do that rather than say, oh, look, mate, I'm too busy. My life's a bit, you know, my life's a bit full right now. I don't have time for you. I think, you know, when somebody reaches out like that, we have to make time. And that goes the same with mm. you working with one person or a hundred people, mm. you know, again, understanding the constraints that we all work under. If somebody's reaching out and asking for help, leadership, guidance, whatever, we have to be ready to give that. Yeah. Because if you do, I think it pays itself back in major dividends down the track. Yeah. I think, you know, that when somebody, particularly in that line of work where you're, there's a level of vulnerability about what you're talking about, there's, if it's mental health or if it's your own journey through dealing with sort of anxiety, you know, there's an honouring when somebody says, hey, you said something that resonated with me, can we have some, hmm. can we catch up for a coffee? Uh, I think it's really important to honour people when they have the courage to step up and, you know, worth t- spending that time with them because you never know what the next thing might be or or what the next conversation might be and how impactful that might be. And I think that's very important. I often talk about, you know, motivation and one of the things that motivated me for half my life in turn, and it was not a positive motivation. It was a sentence my dad told me when I was about 13 years old and he said, Michael, well, he didn't call me Michael at that stage. He said, you know, he said, you will never amount to anything better than a street sweep. You're a waste of space. And that struck a chord that kept resonating for 20 or 30 years after he said that. And I remember talking about this with him close to the end of his time, and, and he couldn't remember ever having saw, at least claimed, mm. that he didn't. He just didn't remember ever saying it. But one thing that, you know, I took away from that, and it's relevant to him, in how we treat other people is that words are powerful. Oh, yeah. Particularly with young people, mm. particularly with vulnerable people. Words are powerful, and we need to make sure that the words we use with the people that we work with mm. have cognizance of that, that, mm. you know, we can get people to work in two ways. It's a divide between management and leadership again. We can walk in, in somewhere, we can tell somebody, we can yell at somebody, we can we can harangue people to work, and they will because of various reasons, you know. Or we can walk in somewhere and we can be kind, we can be supportive, we can be understanding, we can be empathetic, we can be compassionate. Mm. And I believe that is what leadership is about and that that type of leadership is, in the end, Mm. going to have a much greater impact not only on the individuals we work with, but on what the outflow or the outcome or the product of whatever we, yeah. whatever work we're in is. I think an important point there is that none of what you said is actually not about being on mission or on purpose. All of that leadership choices actually really get behind that because you get so much more, people give so much more, people certainly feel part of it. 
I use an expression sometimes, we need to help people move from feeling like a conscript to, to a volunteer. And, you know, they volunteer when you take that leadership approach. And if people, I think people are prepared to, or to go further for somebody that they respect because of the way they're treated by that person than they are for, you know, somebody who's in a, who's in a hierarchical boss position just because of circumstance. Yeah. Mm. Michael, it's been fantastic to chat. Like always, I'm sure we could spend a lot more time talking about some of these sort of things. And I really look forward to doing some more work with you actually around that sort of the men's work and also that helping the next generation understand and navigate that journey of moving to adulthood. But right now, I'd like to perhaps take you to the rapid fire questions and and wrap up our conversation today. So my first question is, if you'd like to fill in the blank, leadership is? Leadership is influencing people. Mm -hmm. Great. Simple. (laughs) Rapid fire, rapid response. (laughs) Um, Do you have a go-to book on... Sorry, I'll, I'll just, you know, I will elaborate on that. The leadership is influencing people to do things because they want to do them, not because, you know, you're telling them to do them fundamentally. Yeah, yeah. That is it for me. No more, no less, really. Yeah, good. Do you have a go-to book on leadership and what is it? No, I don't really, uh, Martin. It's, you know, as I said before, because I don't study leadership as a discipline, you know, I guess one of the things that probably – I've used more than anything is Russ Hunt's book, The Happiness Trap. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a weird book on leadership, but the reason I nominate that is because I spoke before about the importance of self-awareness. I think self-awareness is foundation of, of those relationships that are important in the leadership cycle. And I think the self-awareness and being able to then, you know, develop the awareness of others is important. And The Happiness Trap was a, it's a, it's a, only a small book, but it was a key point in me, A, understanding myself better and then B, managing that understanding in a much better way than I used to. Yeah. Third question, I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known how to be how to be a man earlier in my career. Mm. I mean, my my influence on being a man was, was you know, it was hyper-masculinity, it was toxic masculinity, it was, it was a man box, it was all those things, you know, and, and certainly spending years... Trying to be a tough guy, totally terrified that somebody would find out that behind all the tough exterior there, there sits the soft beating heart of a marshmallow. Mm. It was terrible. And I think, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, I wish there's organisations like Men's and Graham and Isaac that where people come in and, and tell us that there was a different way of being a bloke, that there was, yeah. there was so much more to being a, a man than all the hard stuff, but that it takes courage to break out of that box. Yeah. Yeah, well, Men's League is certainly a great program and as is the work you're doing in your own business. So we'll be putting some links into the show notes about that. Next question, you get a call from a team member. Crisis has just erupted, happened in your company, organisation. What are your first words to that person? My first words uh, would be take a breath. Mm -hmm. Take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's just take a deep breath and let's work through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because at that point in time, You've got the team members come up and their minds exploding because whatever the crisis is, you know they've come to you because they don't know how to deal with it. They all the solutions, all the all the possibilities, all the computations are going through their head, and you know the head's wobbling on the top of the neck. So I think my and it has been. It's okay. Take a breath. Great. Take a deep breath and let's go. Yeah. Great advice. 
Yeah, we're in this together. Yeah. And lastly, do you have a go-to quote on leadership that's had some influence or most influence on your leadership or anything else in your life given what we've talked about? To me, as I said, leadership is about relationships. Mm. And the relationship goes both ways. It's about your relationship with yourself. We we can extend our personalities onto other people. You know, we can extend our own conscious and unconscious bias on other people. We can we can ex, you know have expectations of people that come from the influences that we've had, and through that we can often be hard on people. So I think. The relationship with yourself, the self-awareness, the self-understanding is important. Mm. And then from there, it's the relationship building with others. It's being able to build productive, respectful relationships with other people that has them coming along with you rather than following you because leadership isn't about uh, following. Leadership is about building people up. In fact, to me, leadership is really fundamentally about develop your eventual replacement. Yeah. And I, when you were talking then, I just one of the things that came to me is about the innate sense of responsibility with them we have. Is, and even if you put a title of, it's not the title of leader, it's the title of a human. We have a responsibility for how we turn up and, and how we treat people. Yep. Yeah. And I think there was a saying that roughly goes something along the lines of, you know, be prepared to build a tree that you'll never sit in the shade of. Yeah, right. Hey, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it's about planting the seed now that will grow well after you're gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lot to do with legacy, isn't it? Michael, you definitely have a legacy in the work you're doing with Men's Link, I know, having seen some of the outcomes of that. Thank you so much for time today and, and on the podcast and look forward to catching up with you somewhere real soon. Uh, mate, thanks very much for the talk and also those, those kind words. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.